September 2nd, vote for Jimmy Carter. Greetings. Welcome to Wikisurfer, a kind of experiment in podcast storytelling. Basically, the format is this. Two guys, Brandon Phibbs and Kyle Sullivan, will each pick a starting topic on Wikipedia, crack it open, and see what hides inside. Moving purely on curiosity, hopping from hyperlink to hyperlink, they pick the best, weirdest, and most wonderful stories possible. Happy surfing! So today I wanted to touch on something near and dear to my heart, something that a lot of folks, even paradoxically myself, find unsettling and interesting. Spiders. Yeah, spiders. Brandon, do you have any feelings about spiders? Do they make your skin crawl? Do they keep you awake at night? Uh, no, I'm act- I kind of hover in this little middle world where I, I am fascinated by spiders, Big, scary-looking ones. I don't want them crawling on my skin, but I'm always the guy getting my face right up on them and seeing them in nature. I let most of the spiders in my house, I either rescue them and take them outside or I leave them. In my last uh, apartment, I actually had two uh, daddy long legs that lived right above my bed. And um, I just left them there because they eat bugs and mosquitoes and stuff like that. So why would I get rid of them? So, uh, you know, and they're only daddy long legs, so they're, they're completely innocuous. So, uh, yeah, I named them Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I just hung out with them for months. Well, I'm afraid of them. Like, afraid in a classic sort of way. Oh, Jesus. I bound away like a frightened antelope whenever I encounter one in the house. God, it touched me. So this has been a part of me for a long time. I've... I've got some not-so-fond memories of encounters with spiders as a child that are, frankly, chilling. Whoa, 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 whoa. And down here in the southeast of the U.S., we have some pretty gnarly spiders. Nope, nope, nope. However, as an adult, I made a decision to document them with photography whenever I could as a way to cope with my feelings towards spiders. And you know what? It kind of worked. Focusing on a camera instead of what's on the other side of the camera has really helped me deal with the fear in a lot of situations. It turns out that photography provides a layer of imagined separation, and it provides something to do other than panic. Haven't I seen you somewhere before? Like the Lord of the Rings? And so I found a way to engage with spiders that has opened a door to, well, appreciation and curiosity. But where I wanted to start today deals with a particular kind of spider— Brandon, we have this image of spiders, which is already scary enough for most people. Creepy, crawly, living in the dark spaces of the world, waiting to pounce on an unsuspecting victim. Web builders lying in wait for the next fresh meal. But what other quality do we find elsewhere in nature that we could give to the spider to make them even more frightening? Want to take a guess? It has nothing to do with their venomous nature? Uh, no. Something about the way they move? Not not quite. How about the power of ants? Oh, working together as a collective? Mm-hmm, that's right. I'm talking about something called social spiders. Social spiders. Okay, so I want to set this up. <clears throat> Let's briefly describe what ants do. Ants are a social type of insect, what's called eusocial. 
Eusociality is the most complex form of social behavior we find in nature, and ants typify this arrangement. So do bees and termites and such. We'll get to those species in a moment. Eusocial species are vastly cooperative species in that all members of the colony or group are diversified into particular roles, jobs that normally cannot be changed. In a typical ant colony, you may have a worker caste, a foraging caste, a protector caste, a caste whose only job is to care for the young, and a caste of one, the queen, who is the only member of the colony allowed to reproduce. And these designations are lifelong. So if you are in the foraging caste, you forage for food for the colony until you die. As a group, through the designated caste, a colony cares for their collective young, together even if their young aren't the immediate offspring of the specific ants caring for them. They hunt for food together with the intent of sharing with the colony, specifically the young, and they defend the colony together with their very lives. Eusociality is quite unusual compared to the rest of nature, where only the immediate parents raise their offspring or lay eggs and abandon them, and where animals forage for food for themselves only. Normally, animals won't risk their lives to protect another of the same species. But with eusocial species, this is the norm. And eusociality has made ants and their like vastly more successful at every layer of the game. Let's say you're a happy grasshopper, hopping through the grass in some primate's backyard. When a colony of ants decides to eat you, there isn't much you can do. Some species will swarm over you, overwhelming you, and begin disassembling you in seconds. Ants are easily some of the most effective predators on the planet. They can transform a landscape rapidly, build large, elaborate nests, and form bonds and relationships with other species in the ecosystem that ends up completely transforming affected species. And all this power comes from eusociality, the way that they're organized. I can just hear our political science listeners perking up. Now, I'm about to add some lighter fluid to the fire that is your nightmares, maybe. But can you imagine spiders hunting in a group like ants do? It's true. There are spiders that exhibit varying degrees of social behavior. My skin is crawling just talking about it. What we're talking about is what's called social spiders. Social spiders are largely confined to South America, although a few species can be found in the eastern United States and sporadically elsewhere, in locations like India or Africa. Mostly, however, these are tropical species. According to researchers, there are several levels of social behavior among spiders, and these behaviors appear to have evolved independently 18 or 19 different times and are scattered across eight different families of spiders. So there is a kind of evolutionary inevitability here. Some spider families are predisposed towards these directions of social evolution. It seems to be a future we can't escape. Hollywood, if you're listening, I'm, I'm basically printing free money here. One species, Anilosimus eximius, lives in the Lesser Antilles Islands of the Caribbean. They can live in colonies of up to a thousand individuals. Some colonies have been seen with much larger numbers, too. They share in caring for young collectively and share in the duties of capturing prey. They don't catch as much as a solitary spider might, but they don't need to because they are capturing much larger prey as a group. 
Their egg sacs contain smaller numbers of offspring than a solitary spider would have, but that's okay because with group parenting, more of the offspring survive to adulthood. Still, this isn't a fully eusocial species, but instead a socially inclined species. This means that any one member of Anilosimus eximius can break away and live a life perfectly fine on their own. This is something that any random ant or bee cannot possibly fathom. Also, most of the females can reproduce on their own too, which is quite unlike an ant colony where the queen is the only member of the reproductive caste. And that's the thing about all these social spiders. They aren't quite fully eusocial. Yet, what social behaviors they do exhibit can be divided into two types. Colonial. Colonial. And cooperative. Cooperative. Colonial social spiders are where the spiders are, they just kind of tolerate each other, where there is still a little competition between spider individuals. Cooperative social spiders, on the other hand, are much more liberal in relying on their neighbors. They help each other maintain a collective web and share in the responsibilities of capturing prey and raising young. It is really a spectrum between the two, colonial and cooperative, based on how much or how little competition exists between individuals. Spiders are normally solitary creatures, and thus are very wary of other members of their own species. Competition between members of the same species usually runs high. I mean, we're talking about a kind of animal where the females of some species regularly eat the males after mating. In the English language, we describe our world as a dog-eat-dog, but dogs don't do that. Spiders do. A West African funnel spider, Agelina consicata, shows us a little more of this colonial cooperative spectrum. Like the previous species, Eximius, consicata maintains a communal web environment. However, each spider has their own region of a larger web structure, and each spider reproduces individually. There are no caste divisions like with ants. In addition to collectively maintaining the larger web structure, some consociata spiders have been seen feeding offspring that weren't theirs. So, Consociata leans toward the cooperative end of the social spider spectrum. Another social spider, Malos gregalis, a Mexican spider, maintains a communal web that structurally shows preference for the vibration of prey instead of the vibrations of other spiders. Can you imagine how awkward it might be if you accidentally ate your neighbor? Well, the gregalis web structure helps prevent this. So far, we've been talking about web-building spiders. The funny thing is that most spiders don't build webs. Most roam around like lions or tigers do, chasing down prey and feasting on them in the wilds of the jungle. Jumping spiders are famous for this. And wouldn't you know it, there's a jumping spider from Central America on the list of social spiders. Bagheera Kiplingi, named for the Black Panther character from the Jungle Book. This is a quasi-social species, Most live solitary lives, but have occasionally been found together in groups where, surprisingly, females outnumber males. These groupings help to protect the young, primarily, just like other social spiders. However, there is one surprising way Kiplingi is unlike almost any spider. Kiplingi appears to be an herbivore. Yeah, a plant-eating spider. How about that? That's like if an African lion decided to stop hunting and do what zebras do. Now, this isn't 100% true in all cases. Some members of Kipalingi will have a mixed diet, but some populations skew disproportionately towards a vegetarian lifestyle. 
They feed off the young leaf shoots of a species of acacia tree, which, to bring us full circle, is also a tree that has evolved a symbiotic relationship with a species of ant. Bagheera Kiplingi has to avoid these ants on these trees in order to survive, but they do it, and they sometimes do it in social groups. And, on occasion, when a Kiplingi absolutely has to have some raw animal protein, they'll pounce on a passing ant carrying an ant larva and eat the larva. Kiplingi is still a spider, after all. There are several more species of spider on the social spectrum. None of these species are fully eusocial, technically. Instead, it is like we are seeing a proto-eusocial situation. Maybe, if these spiders keep this up, then one day evolution will show them the door to full-on eusociality, and the Earth will have a brand new fuel for nightmares. And the weirdness of full-on eusociality is where I will start in the next portion of my surfing, so prepare yourself for more bugs. In the meantime, where did you get to in your digital wanderings? Well, first of all, I have to say that um, jumping spiders are my favorite spiders on planet Earth. And there's some, and I, I realize it is only because of like Disney cartoons. It is only because we anthropomorphize them because they have such massive um, anterior medium eyes. You know, they, they have they have several eyes. I think most of them have like four, two main ones right in the front of their head and then like two little ones like right above like where their eyebrows normally are. But those the ones on the front just make them look adorable. I agree. And I catch them in my garden all the time and, and just kind of like let them bounce around my arm because they just and they usually have such iridescent colors. Oh, they're awesome. I love them. Yeah, those are the only species, the only group of spiders that I have no problem with. I'm often... You see them in the backyard. I often come right up to them, and their vision is so so good that they, it's almost like they look you right in the face sometimes. But are we? Do we not have a problem? Because I think most people are this way. Like most people like them. Do we not have a problem with them just because they look just that much more like us because of those eyes? Like, do we dismiss the otherness and the alienness just because? Hey, you kind of look like me. I wonder. I wonder too. Because we should be terrified of them because they jump and all of a sudden like they're they were here and now they're over there. How did they get there so fast? Oh my god, they're going to kill me. That's what we should be reacting, but we don't. We don't. Yeah. It's some there's some kind of power of anthropomorphizing I think that happens as like a background program in our brains, you know. Anything that looks cute, we're automatically like okay with despite how weird they are, you know. 100% agree with you. I mean, that is evolution working on levels we're not even aware of to influence how we perceive and and um, accept or reject, you know, other animal species on the planet. Yeah, totally agree. Well, unlike previous shows in which I've generally kind of prided myself on surfing between as many divergent stories as I can find, today I'm going to settle into a theme. All my stories this episode are dealing with the chief. The Commander-in-Chief. Our story begins on September 5th, 1975. President Gerald Ford was walking from the Senator Hotel to the State Capitol Building in Sacramento, California, for a meeting with then, and current, Governor Jerry Brown. He stopped along the way to shake hands with people who had gathered to meet him. One of those people was a 26-year-old woman named Lynette Squeaky Fromm. When the President of the United States was just an arm's length away from her, Fromm pulled a semi-automatic pistol from a holster strapped to her left leg, aimed it squarely at the President, and squeezed the trigger. 
nothing happened. Lucky for President Ford, Fromm didn't know that she first had to load a round into the chamber. By the time she realized her mistake, a Secret Service agent tackled her to the ground. Fromm, it was discovered, was passionate about the environment. She was convinced that automotive smog was killing California's giant coastal redwoods, the tallest trees in the world, and somehow felt that if she killed Ford, she'd bring attention to the problem. Instead, she only brought attention to herself. Fromm, it turned out, was a devotee of Charles Manson. In fact, she was one of the cult leader's earliest followers and had a reputation for being among his most devoted. Whoever's got the gun does what I tell him to do. It's my goddamn gun. Everybody wants to give orders. No one wants to obey. You dig? Even though there was never proof that she participated in the Tate murder spree, she was no angel. After Manson and his brood were imprisoned, Fromm pledged her allegiance to him and assumed a leadership role in the cult. In 1971, she served three months in jail for attempting to feed a hamburger laced with LSD to a witness to the Tate murder in an attempt to prevent her from testifying. To this day, she is one of only two members of the Manson family to not renounce their namesake. During her trial, Fromm refused to cooperate with her defense. And at one point, she even threw an apple at the prosecuting attorney, hitting him in the face and knocking his glasses off after he said she was full of hate and violence and should be severely punished. For her crime, Fromm was sentenced to life in prison. In 1979, she attacked a fellow inmate with the claw end of a hammer. In December of 1987, when she heard Manson had developed testicular cancer, she escaped from prison to see him and was found on Christmas Day, a few days later, only two miles from where she'd escaped. Fromm was released from prison in 2009, just shy of three years after Ford's death. In all, she spent nearly 35 years behind bars. For his part, after the attempt on his life, President Ford met with Jerry Brown as scheduled, as if nothing had even happened. In fact, 17 days later, he was back in California again on September 22nd, this time in San Francisco, to address the World Affairs Council. As he stepped out of the historic Union Square Hotel, having finished his speech, he paused to wave at the crowd of about 3,000 people. As he did so, two shots rang out. The first bullet narrowly missed his head. The second flew wild, ricocheted, and wounded a 42-year-old taxi driver. Ford was saved thanks to the quick thinking of a heroic bystander and decorated Vietnam veteran, Oliver Bill Sippel, who dove and grabbed the arm of the shooter. Secret Service agents shoved Ford into the limousine, and within seconds, the entire motorcade was speeding away toward the airport. In their rearview mirror was a 45-year-old, five-time divorced, middle-class housewife and mother of four named Sarah Jane Moore. Moore claimed that her attempt on the president's life was made in hopes of triggering a revolution. He was, as she complained, appointed, not elected. Recall that Ford was Nixon's vice president. Moore was active in revolutionary, extremist leftist politics. She was also an FBI informant. Ironically, Moore had been picked up the previous day on an illegal handgun charge. The police confiscated her 44 caliber revolver and more than 100 rounds of ammunition, forcing her to buy a new gun, a 38 caliber revolver, mere hours before her assassination attempt. When she fired her weapon at the president, she was roughly 40 feet away. But because it was a new gun, and she had not yet had enough time to familiarize herself with it, she was unaware that the sights were just slightly off. 
Moore pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. Like Fromm, she too escaped prison in 1979, but was recaptured a few hours later. She was released on parole in 2007 at the age of 77. She spent 32 years behind bars. To this day, Moore and Fromm are the only two women who have ever attempted to assassinate an American president. Both attempts were on Gerald Ford, both took place within three weeks of each other, and both happened in California. While it was never made public, Ford never traveled anywhere after that without a bulletproof vest. One final tragic note. Remember that heroic bystander who thwarted Moore's attempt, Bill Sipple? Turns out no good deed goes unpunished. The San Francisco Chronicle ran a story in 1975 explaining that one of the reasons why the White House never publicly thanked him was because he was a gay man. The only problem is, while Sipple was out in California and frequently marched with Harvey Milk, he had not come out to his family, who disowned him once they knew. Tragically, it was Milk himself who told the press that Sipple was gay, hoping to change the stereotype of gay men as pedophiles to genuine heroes. It was, Milk said, too good an opportunity to pass up. While Sipple sued the newspaper for invasion of privacy, the case was eventually dismissed. The incident brought him so much attention that Sipple fell into alcoholism and wrestled with mental health issues. He later said publicly that he wished he'd never grabbed Moore's arm. He was discovered dead in his Tenderloin apartment beside a bottle of Jack Daniels with the television still on. He'd been dead, the coroner estimated, for about a week and a half. Sipple was only 47. Found among his prized possessions were newspaper clippings highlighting his heroics and a belated letter of thanks from the White House. Man, that is sad. It's funny how people get treated even though they do something nice and, and I guess relatively good. The thing I'm struck by is how have I never heard of this story? I, I think that's one of my favorite things about doing this show. We, I am continually coming across things I should have heard about but haven't, and I love that. Yeah, it's a crazy uh, thing. I, I've never heard of it either. You know, I, I figured that assassination attempts kind of go on with some regularity, that they're usually stopped by security structures or something like that. But it, two attempts on his life in, in the same state in a number of weeks, like, can you imagine what a, a Ford assassination would have felt like for the country, you know, after the whole Nixon thing? Like, it just seems unfathomable. And the Nixon thing following after JFK, I mean, yeah, it, it, it would have been such a destabilizing feeling. Yeah. Hmm. Also, I have no idea how throw the apple isn't like an idiom somewhere in English. <laughs> I mean, does she have an apple on the stand or something or in her seat and she just threw it across the courtroom? <laughs> That's kind of amazing. I actually wanted the same thing. I assume that she was given a snack by her counsel or, or, or some such thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for a very interesting story. Um, so I think we'll pick up back where we left off. Uh, we were dealing with social spiders. Uh, this opened the surfing door to the most complex behavior ever involved in nature, eusociality. Spiders may have crept right up to the threshold of the door of eusociality, evolutionarily speaking, but they haven't gone through yet. But don't worry. Plenty of species have gone through this door, including, very possibly, humans. Climbing the social ladder. Eusociality is odd. Where normal animal behavior has individuals or species doing X, eusociality usually has them doing Y, normally to the detriment of the individual. 
As mentioned before, eusocial species are divided into castes, and members of one caste cannot do what members of another caste can do. Castes are usually lifelong appointments, genetically determined. There is cooperative nest building to the maximum, collective raising of offspring to the maximum, group hunting on a huge scale, and reproduction is denied to the vast majority of those in the colony, save for the proper caste, the queen in most cases. So lots of species have gone through this door, including some that may surprise you. Ants, of course, are iconic. Bees, wasps, termites all have eusocial organization too. Also a beetle from Australia, the ambrosia beetle. Some species of aphids, some species of flies, and still other insect species display eusocial traits. Ants are the most famous with good reason. Their flavors of eusocial organization seem to have the most variety. There are species of ants, like the leafcutter ants, that intentionally grow crops of fungus to feed to their young. Ant species will often form symbiotic relationships with other species, relationships that get so tight that the other species evolve so that they cannot survive without ant intervention. There are ant ranchers, so to speak, ants that raise and keep aphids and other insects like we might keep cattle. Honeypot ants store food for a rainy day by engorging some of the colony members and milking them like cows. There are ants that go to war with other colonies, piling up the war dead in mass graves and capturing survivors and forcing them into the bottom rung of their own colonies as slaves. And the nests ants build can act like cities, sometimes getting quite large and exhibiting highly sophisticated engineering. Anytime you look at an ant colony, you're looking at a mind-blowing metropolis. In other areas of nature, there are species of shrimp that evolved eusociality. In mammals, there are two solid entries, the naked mole rat and the Demarland mole rat, ugly creatures but fully eusocial. And controversially, it has been proposed that humans are a form of eusocial primate. This is a mighty big claim and has led to some of the more rigorous debates going on in the science of biology right now. The claim that humans are a eusocial primate was put forward by Dr. E.O. Wilson in his book, The Social Conquest of Earth, and it is worth talking about. The implications of human beings being eusocial are big ones that can refocus how we see ourselves through an evolutionary lens. So let me try and break down this debate into something we can understand. <clears throat> so I think we all understand classic biological evolution, as put forth by Charles Darwin, yeah? Survival of the fittest the strongest, toughest, or rather those who produce the most offspring ultimately tend to survive to the next generation. Competition is the name of the game. Among the vast landscape of life, most creatures struggle on their own to survive and reproduce, most of the time even against members of their own species. This is normal, and it is called individual selection. The pressures of evolution bear down on the individual to survive. But what are we to make of something like an ant colony, where 99% of all individuals cooperate completely with each other, where that same 99% do not fight each other to reproduce themselves, but instead help others in their collective group to reproduce? Among certain non-eusocial species, like birds or mammals, we can see members of an extended family assisting in the raising of offspring that aren't technically their own. Not quite the level of cooperative care ants practice, but something outside of what we would expect as normal for classic biological evolution. A kind of natural altruism. This isn't individual selection, is it? So how do we square this circle? How in the world could such massively cooperative behavior evolve in a spider-eat-spider -spider world? 
The question goes back to the very beginning of the scientific theory of evolution by natural selection. Charles Darwin himself, in his book On the Origin of Species, tried to reconcile the weird paradox that ants and termites and bees represent. Darwin's answer was to write about a concept that would later be called kin selection, as opposed to individual selection. Kin selection is an evolutionary strategy that favors the survival of offspring that are related to you, as opposed to offspring that are not related to you. Like, if you don't happen to have any kids, then you're going to favor your brothers, nieces, and nephews over complete strangers. J.B.S. Haldane, another famous biologist, illustrates how this might work by joking that he would willingly die for two brothers or eight cousins. What he meant is that this is sort of a matter of math. Siblings are, on average, 50% identical by descent, nephews are 25%, cousins 12.5%. There's a math formula called Hamilton's Rule that describes this relationship. The degree of relatedness can be used to identify how much work in raising relatives' offspring would be worth replacing yourself, reproductively speaking. If you aren't going to have kids, then helping two brothers reproduce, two brothers who each share 50% of your same genes, is the same as reproducing yourself. Get it? Kin selection is a way to marry the individual struggle of Darwinian biological evolution by natural selection to the idea that a group of individuals can struggle together, but couching it in terms of a half-hearted altruism. Helping my brother raise his nephews really helps my genes in the long run, you see. There are other factors that come into play with kin selection, like how far offspring go when they leave the nest, and animals having the ability to even recognize their kin. But overall, kin selection is a way to describe the kind of altruism that we see in nature. Through kin selection, evolution is still a game of getting your genes out into the world, even if you are helping your brother do it. Presumably, this can be applied to eusocial species, although it is a strange fit, according to some. Most ants in a colony cannot reproduce themselves because they are sterile, so they don't have the choice to have their own kids or to help their sister. If individual selection were at play at all, then these ants are all evolutionary dead ends. And kin selection can only work if individual selection is also a factor. Helping your kin raise their offspring is ultimately a selfish choice. But ants, man, ants, they ruin everything, from picnics to scientific theories. So scientists not satisfied with the explanatory power of kin selection as an idea turned to another idea, multi-level selection, which is born out of a slightly older related idea called group selection. Multi-level selection is the circumstance where the pressures of evolution can act on a group as well as the individual instead of just at the level of the individual. Take a moment and let that sink in. I know this can get a little mixed up. Multi-level selection as opposed to individual selection and kin selection is where the evolutionary pressures can sometimes apply more strongly to the group level than the individual level. But overall, pressures are acting on multiple levels, on cells, on tissues, on individuals, and on the group at the same time. Or let me put it another way, a way that Dr. Wilson and his co-conspirators would put it. Ant colonies aren't masses of individuals. They are individuals themselves, meaning that the entire thing, the nest, the worker caste, the larva, are all part of one big superorganism, the genetic and phenotypic expression of one queen ant. In that, ant colonies are actually acting as one, the way all the cells in your liver act as one organ with common function and destiny. 
In competition between ant colonies, evolutionary pressures on ant colonies are actually pressures on a specific queen and between specific queens, between individuals. The worker ants are just extensions of the queen's genome and directive. Wilson and others argue that when a species hits a certain level of cooperative behavior, evolutionary pressures begin acting more strongly on the group, which begins the evolutionary ride to full-on eusociality. For this reason, they've rebranded group selection as multi-level selection. They are trying to find a more coherent way to explain how in the world eusociology can evolve if animals work individually in their own self-interests. In the field of biology, this topic can create quite a heated debate. Seriously, try it. Next time you're hanging out with some biologist friends, ask them about kin selection versus group selection and multi-level selection. Watch as they tear each other apart. Normally, science doesn't produce debate like this. You do an experiment, collect the data, and everyone is satisfied. But because of the complexity of the ideas involved, straight up measuring and collecting data doesn't immediately resolve the question. And so the debate persists from Darwin all the way to E.O. Wilson. Ants, man, they ruin everything. Eusociality is so, so weird, but maybe not that weird. Organs are collections of cells that really should be competing against each other, yet they work in unison. How did that evolve? Surely the process is an analog to what Dr. Wilson et al. are describing. And Dr. Wilson extrapolates outward with the conditions of multi-level selection and applies it to humans, to our collective group dynamics, to religion and creativity. Are we a eusocial primate? He says we could be. We share many of the same qualities as other eusocial species. It's just that, evolutionarily speaking, we came from a different direction to eusociality. In the same way that multiple spider families keep evolving pro-social behaviors, there may be more than one way to evolve eusociality. Dr. Wilson does say that mammals cannot be fully eusocial in the way that ants or bees are because of other idiosyncratic elements of mammalian evolution, the requirements of child-rearing, mating, etc. An ant queen will have tens of thousands of offspring in her lifetime. Humans, however, don't operate at that level. But culturally, we do a lot of adoption and piecing together human families out of individuals that aren't directly related to us. The door is open on the idea, and many other scientists are weighing in. Dr. Wilson and co-authors published an article on the topic of multi-level selection in the journal Nature before Wilson published his book. Some 130-some-odd scientists co-authored a rebuttal letter to the journal. They were not happy about multi-level selection as an idea, with the rebuttal being described as, quote, outrage. Imagine that, outraged biologists. The debate rages today. It makes me wonder sometimes how scientists approach certain topics or defend them. In science, you'd expect interesting ideas to garner attention and win out or lose on merit and data. But sometimes you can see that this isn't always the case. One of the responses to Dr. Wilson's ideas came from Richard Dawkins, who claimed that maybe Dr. Wilson never understood Ken selection theory in the first place. Them's harsh words for a scientist, and unwarranted, I believe if the spirit of science applies and that the idea should be tested on its own. Anyway, that's enough about ants. For now, let's get back to your surfboard and pick up where we left off with you. 
Man, that's some complicated stuff. <laughs> it's fascinating. I mean, it's you realize how obviously you can't do something like this. I mean, you as in Kyle Sullivan can't do something like this without thinking about the Borg from Star Trek and the hive mind and stuff like that. And it's, you know, I've always thought of ants as a community that functions toward a single goal composed of individuals. And and what this is starting to say is that it's much more like the Star Trek Borg in which those individuals are completely subsumed into something else. They are merely the, I mean, we wouldn't call our own fingers something different than ourselves or toes or something like that. These are all just part of us. And in which case, this is still the entity of the queen, but they're just separate bodies. I mean, this is this is crazy. It is crazy. And it drives biology as a science kind of nuts because it's, it's like, like I mentioned, it's really hard to square that circle, you know? I mean, th- this is the, the, the area of biology that needs the most work, in my opinion, on the theoretical side. And the, the analog that of how organs evolved, like there has to be some kind of like, I don't know. It just seems like there's a an obvious extrapolation to happen there that cells and individual ants or individual people like are all kind of the same kind of cogs in a wheel when you when you hover at a high enough level of observation. Darwin saw it immediately, which is the thing I've, I'm most impressed with here. Mm. Uh, in the origin of species, while he's looking at the entire spectrum of life and figuring the system out, he he's he comes across the problem himself, and we still haven't really figured it out. And that's kind of amazing to me because, you know, biology gets gets hit by, as being a kind of softer or weaker science by some of the the math dominated sciences. But come on, man, if you can figure this out, that, that's a hard thing to figure out. Ants shouldn't exist, but they do. That's uh, amazing. I'm also struck by, I believe it's, I, I really hope I'm not uh, being ignorant right now, but isn't convergent evolution the idea that uh, that evolution drives different species to the same thing via different roots? Yes. Unless I'm, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, the eye has evolved um, in different species, something, what was it, like seven or eight different times in a completely different way, always getting to the exact same place? Yeah, that's good. Co- that's convergent evolution. Uh, the dolphin fin and the shark fin, because of the ocean, you know, they they find the similar solution to the same problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm struck by the fact of you know, as you were discussing that you know that humans may have come to it in a completely different way, because obviously no one can argue that we are not. Well, some people probably could. There's always those uh, debates that I'm always uh, getting into with friends about free will. But you know, the idea of are we autonomous creatures or are we merely one gigantic hive, you know, that we've come to these, this sort of, uh, useology, uh, in a, it, via a different, very different route. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the, one of the social spider species. Like we have all the harm hallmarks of a eusocial species, but we can break away into smaller organizations or individual organizations. Uh, sometimes, you know, at a moment's notice. And I think that maybe at best you can describe us as a pro eusocial primate. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I was fascinated by what you said in the first surf about uh, the idea that that you have some of these spe- these spider species can, if they choose to, break away and live as individuals. But you would never conceive of that happening within an ant colony or a beehive, which is so true. They would never survive on their own. They're not uh, they're not designed for that. They don't have the sort of social infrastructure or individual infrastructure to survive on their own, much like, uh, of course, spiders do. That's fascinating stuff. 
Mm. It's a it's a favorite deep dive of mine. Well, chances are, coming back to my surf, that you'd never heard of those assassination attempts on President Ford. I think we've established that. Had you heard of those? Not once, not at all. So I know I hadn't before I stumbled across them a couple months ago. But the fact is, there have been more than 30 attempts to kill a current, former, or president-elect since the 1800s. And that's the subject of this surf. We tend only to remember those attempts which were successful. That said, we've had four presidents killed in office. I suspect most of us can only name two of them. Abraham Lincoln, who was shot by a Confederate sympathizer, John Wilkes Booth, while watching a play at Ford's Theater in 1865. And John F. Kennedy, who was shot in 1963 by Lee Harvey Oswald while motorcading through the streets of Dallas. Kyle, can you recall the other presidents who were killed in office? <clears throat> I, I believe I can. Um, William McKinley and, oh, uh, no, he's escaping me. I think I just got the one extra guy. Sorry. I'll give you a hint. Lasagna. Lasagna. I hate Mondays. Oh, uh, uh, Garfield, the 23rd president, right? Garfield, indeed. Well done. So I, I think that most people, you know, we have this idea uh, of, of two cemented in, but the other two kind of like fade into most people's memory. Because most people, I think they forget that on the morning of July 2nd, 1881, President James Garfield was shot twice, once in the right arm and once in the back, just four months after he took office. He didn't actually die until 11 weeks later on September 19th of infections that had developed within his wounds. His killer, Charles Gateau, was hung for the crime. He claimed he shot the president because he'd been passed over for an appointment as ambassador of France. But it may have been his bipolar disorder or the effects of syphilis on his brain. On September 6th, 1901, President McKinley was attending the Pan American Exhibition when he was shot twice at close range by Leon Chugas, a self-proclaimed anarchist who hid his revolver in a fake arm bandage. The first bullet didn't actually injure McKinley as it ricocheted off what they think was either a button or possibly an award medal on the president's jacket and lodged in his sleeve. The second bullet, however, lodged in his stomach and it took him a week to die. The police beat Chugas so badly at the scene that many suspected he would be unable to go to court. His rushed trial took only two days, and he was executed shortly thereafter in the electric chair. It was after McKinley's death that Congress directed the Secret Service, which up to this point was merely an enforcement arm of the Treasury Department, to begin protecting the president full time. It may also interest you to know that some historians believe that the number of assassinated presidents should be six, not four. Zachary Taylor served as president for only a year, dying in office in 1850. His body was exhumed in 1980 to test his remains. While he's recorded as dying from some sort of gastroenteritis, many people at the time think he was poisoned. But the lab, which tested samples of his hair, fingernails, and other tissues, couldn't find any sign of poison. Another ex-president rumored to have been murdered is Warren G. Harding, who died in 1923 of either a heart attack or a stroke brought on by a severe case of food poisoning. The Harding's personal doctor disagreed with this official diagnosis, and when the president's wife refused an autopsy, many speculated that the president had been the victim of a poisoning, likely by his wife, who was rumored to be upset after learning her husband was having an affair. Now, these are not the stories I actually want to focus on today. Instead, I want to tell you about a few of the astonishing attempts made on other presidents that you've probably never heard of. Presidential assassination attempts. President Reagan! 
Most people remember President Ronald Reagan getting shot in front of the Washington Hilton in 1981 by John Hinckley Jr., who said he wanted to kill Reagan to impress the actress Jodie Foster. But you likely can't name many others. Well, when I am done here, you will be able to wow friends and astonish trivia colleagues. The very first assassination attempt on a U.S. president ever was in 1835, just outside the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., when a disgruntled house painter attempted to shoot Andrew Jackson with not one, but two pistols. Amazingly, both guns misfired, and the would-be assassin was apprehended when the president himself severely beat him with his cane. We've already discussed how Abraham Lincoln died, but did you know there were two other attempts on Abraham Lincoln's life? The second one occurred just a year before he was killed. An unknown sniper with a rifle attempted to shoot Lincoln while he rode his horse one evening unguarded. He was very nearly successful. The bullet passed through Lincoln's hat and knocked it from his head. One of my favorite stories involves my favorite president, Teddy Roosevelt, who was running for office in 1912. Now, if you know your dates, you know that by that time, he had already served two terms as president. Roosevelt was running on a third-party ticket of his own creation, the Bull Moose Party. It was a rowdy campaign, and TR was mobbed by thousands of people who wanted to hear him speak. John Schrank was not one of them. A German immigrant and paranoid schizophrenic, Schrank thought TR's plan to get around the Constitution and serve a third term was an abomination, and he was just the man to do something about it. He also claimed William McKinley had visited him in a dream and told him to avenge his assassination by killing Roosevelt, but that's another story. On October 14th, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as Roosevelt stepped out of the Hotel Gilpatrick on his way to give a speech at the Milwaukee Auditorium, John Schrank pulled a 38 caliber Colt revolver and from a distance of only five feet, shot Roosevelt in the chest. Nearby onlookers wrestled Schrank to the ground and they might have beaten him to death had not Roosevelt himself intervened. The would-be assassin lived the rest of his life in an insane asylum, dying of pneumonia in 1943. Now, this is the point in the story where I say that TR went to the hospital and blah, blah, blah. But this is Teddy Roosevelt. And of course, that's not what happened. An experienced hunter and anatomist, he correctly deduced that since he was not coughing up blood, the bullet had not reached his lung. Instead of going to the hospital... Roosevelt instead went to the Milwaukee Auditorium and gave his speech as planned. He opened with, Friends, I shall ask you to be as quiet as possible. I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. Opening his overcoat to show the crowd his bloody shirt, he added, The bullet is in me now, so I cannot make this a very long speech, but I will try my best. An hour and a half later, Roosevelt concluded his brief remarks and finally allowed himself to be examined by a doctor. It turned out his speech, all 50 pages of it, had been folded in Roosevelt's breast pocket, right beside his metal glasses case. Those objects slowed the bullet and saved his life. X-rays showed the bullet lodged against his fourth right rib on an upward path to his heart. Physicians determined that it would be more risky to remove the bullet than to leave it be. It remained pinned between his ribs until his death in 1919. The incident, of course, only helped to cement TR's outsized, larger-than-life, tougher-than-nails mythology. What it didn't do was help him win back the White House. 
While Roosevelt accrued the largest ever third-party vote in U.S. history, he ended up splitting the Republican vote with William Howard Taft, launching Woodrow Wilson to the presidency. All right, some other cool stories. In 1928, Argentinian anarchists attempted to blow up Herbert Hoover's train, but they were caught just before they could place the explosives on a section of the track further down the line. In 1933, in Miami, Florida, Giuseppe Zangara fired five shots at Franklin Delano Roosevelt just over two weeks before his inauguration. None struck the president, but they did strike six others and killed one of them, Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak. Some historians think that perhaps Mayor Cermak may have been the target all along on the orders of mob boss Al Capone. On November 1st, 1950, Two Puerto Rican pro-independence activists attempted to kill President Harry Truman at Blair House, one of the homes across the street from the White House where Truman was staying during renovations. They were nearly successful too, killing one White House police officer and injuring two others before they were stopped. JFK also had a near miss three years before his run-in with Oswald. In 1960, while vacationing in Florida, the president-elect was the target of a 73-year-old former postal worker named Richard Paul Pavlik, who hated Catholics and packed his 1950 Buick full of dynamite, intending to crash it into Kennedy's car. He parked outside the Kennedy residence, ready to set his plan in motion, but changed his mind at the last minute when he saw Kennedy's wife Jacqueline and daughter Caroline waving goodbye. Richard Nixon was involved in two extraordinary assassination attempts. The first occurred in 1972, when a man named Arthur Bremer smuggled a gun into an event Nixon was attending, but decided against his course of action after seeing how much security surrounded the president. However, not one to let perfectly good bullets go to waste, Bremer used five of them a few weeks later on the governor of Alabama, the infamous George Wallace, he of segregation now, segregation forever, who was paralyzed for the rest of his life. But the craziest attempt on Nixon's life came two years after that, on February 22nd, 1974, when Samuel Bick hijacked a commercial airliner while it was still at the gate, intending to crash it into the White House. When the pilots told him they couldn't take off while the wheel blocks were still in place, Bick shot them both, killing one. A police officer shot Bick through the main cabin door window, after which time Bick, who was also armed with a gasoline bomb, shot and killed himself. Did you know that John Hinckley Jr., the man who later shot and nearly killed President Reagan, planned on shooting Carter during his re-election campaign, but lost his nerve? On November 2nd, vote for Jimmy Carter. Three months after he left office in 1993, 14 men believed to have been working for Saddam Hussein planned on assassinating George Bush Sr. with a car bomb before Kuwaiti officials foiled their plot. In retaliation... President Bill Clinton launched a cruise missile attack on the Iraqi intelligence building in Baghdad. Clinton had no fewer than four attempts on his life, three of them in 1994 alone. The first was when Ronald Gene Barber, a retired military officer from Florida, traveled to D.C. to kill Clinton while the president was jogging, but discovered on his arrival that the president was on a state visit to Russia. 
The second attempt was Frank Eugene Quarter, a truck driver from Maryland who stole a single-engine Cessna, which he planned to crash into the White House, but instead flew it into a tree on the White House lawn, killing only himself. The final attempt of 1994 was when Francisco Martin Duran opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle on a number of men in suits standing on the White House lawn, thinking one of them was Clinton. In fact, the president was safely inside. He got off at least 29 shots before a number of nearby tourists tackled and subdued him. The final attempt on Clinton's life occurred in 1996, when a Saudi terrorist no one had ever heard of by the name of Osama bin Laden planted a bomb on a bridge the president's motorcade was going to pass over. Luckily, the intercepted message hinted at the attack, and the Secret Service altered the president's route. Within a month of taking office, George W. Bush found a man firing a number of shots at the White House. And in 2001, after giving a speech in the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, a man threw a live grenade toward the president's podium. While the would-be assassin successfully pulled the grenade's pin, the explosive was wrapped in a handkerchief, which luckily prevented the safety lever from detaching. Three attempts were made on Barack Obama's life. A man with a knife was caught with a forged Al Jazeera press credential trying to get close to the president. As with Presidents Bush and Clinton, yet another man opened fire on the White House with a semi-automatic rifle. No one was injured. And in 2013, several letters laced with the deadly poison ricin were sent to the Oval Office. Even President Trump has had an attempt on his life during his 2006 campaign that most people are completely unaware of. A 20-year-old British citizen with a lengthy history of mental disorders attempted to seize the pistol of a Las Vegas police officer providing security at a campaign event in an attempt to kill the presumptive Republican nominee. He was unsuccessful. So that's just some of the insane laundry list, this cornucopia of assassination attempts that most of us have never even heard of. That's all mind-blowing. It's all mind-blowing. I can't, I can't believe some of these stories are so... To, to, from where I sit, under the radar, like, are, are you kidding me? The the possible poisoned presidents, uh, uh, Zachary Taylor and Harding, like, why hasn't that become like a kind of, that's an easy movie grab, you know? Yeah, and, and some of these have actually had movies made about them. The assassination attempt on on Richard Nixon by Samuel Bick, who, who tried to uh, hijack the commercial airliner. That was actually made into a movie not too many years ago with Sean Penn. But I'd not seen the film, and it wasn't until doing this research that I even had heard really of the movie. I kind of some remember it coming out, but didn't even know it was about or thought it was a fiction. So, I mean, these days, of course, when you talk about hijacking a commercial airliner and crashing into something, it just evokes 9-11, and we know the, the amount of devastation that mm. wrought. And to think that that wasn't the first time someone thought up that idea hmm. is crazy. And, and you know something, the, uh, <clears throat> the Lincoln attempted assassination where the bullet went through his hat. Um, like we, we've put the story of Lincoln in film and on movie a bunch. And I don't remember ever seeing the attempted assassination, like color any of those moments with him. If it were me, like I'd, <laughs> I'd be indoors in the basement the rest of my presidency, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's amazing. You know, it kind of goes back to something I said in the beginning, which was it wasn't until after um, after the assassination of President McKinley that the, the, the president ever had a dedicated Secret Service whose job was to be with him all the time and protect him. That was 1901. We didn't have – the president didn't have regular security service until – 
the beginning of just last century. That's crazy. It's been just over 100 years. That is really crazy when you think about it. We were so naive back then, maybe. <laughs> I think we were naive, but we also lived in a completely different world. It was, I mean, you can still have disgruntled people in a small world for sure. But I, I think that when you have when you have a land that is much less diverse, much smaller, much more agrarian, I think you have different sorts of fears and you have a different set of problems that you're looking for than you do today. Grievances, maybe. Yeah, different different set of grievances, just a, a, just a completely different sort of fear factor. Yeah, I guess now we put a lot more cultural emphasis on who the president is and his role in society. Like he's seen as a much more powerful figure uh, now as opposed to, you know, maybe when Andrew Jackson even was president. That might be a change of note, possibly. Sure. We flippantly toss around words like the leader of the free world. Well, he wasn't the leader of a free world then. I mean, you could argue that the president didn't become the de facto leader of the free world until almost midway through the 20th century. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things struck me during that story, which, which again, I emphasize was really cool. Um, there's a There's a moral or a lesson to this, right? So McKinley, the first bullet that hit McKinley hit a medal that he was wearing and didn't do its intended damage. Roosevelt's would-be assassin accidentally shot a folded-up speech in his pocket. Like, maybe the lesson is to carry a lot of speeches on you or to earn a lot of medals and wear them at all times to protect yourself from would-be assassins. Yeah. I mean, I'm joking, but, like, that's incredible that they can get that close to death and a medal deflected the bullet. That's insane to me. Well, it also has to do a lot with the caliber of the weapon. I mean, we have clearly these days designed handguns that are that are so much more powerful mm. than they used to be. <clears throat> uh, another item of uh, another thought that I had when you're talking about the attempted uh, attempt on George Bush Sr.'s life, mm. possibly being related to Saddam Hussein somehow. Like, I'm not a normally a conspiracy theory guy, but, like, I can see a natural progression of events leading up to the Gulf, the second Gulf War. You know, like, George Bush Jr. sort of exacting revenge or something. I, I mean, it's ridiculous. I completely agree it's ridiculous. But still, the mind naturally pulls toward that. Yeah, absolutely. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And you can kind of look back and suddenly start filling in these little pieces and, and recognizing where the— the breadcrumbs of modern history, how, how we got here, you know, via these breadcrumbs. Good story, man. I, I liked it. I'm, I'm disappointed there's not a whole string of movies to watch about each and every one of these incidents. Well, I might have some more cool stories for you in just a couple minutes. But first, let's go back to your surf. Uh, for my final surf, I wanted to come back around to Dr. E.O. Wilson, author of The Social Conquest of Earth and world-renowned ant expert. E.O. Wilson. Dr. Wilson is a hero of mine, uh, primarily because he often tries out new ideas even when they get him into trouble with his peers. That takes a little bit of academic bravery, I think. The multi-level selection versus kin selection debate isn't the first time Dr. Wilson has set scientific waters to boil. I'll get to that in a moment. First, I want to describe a little bit about who Dr. Wilson is and why people should care about him. Edward Osborne Wilson was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, that's where I live. He spent a lot of time in Alabama growing up, 
It is no surprise that he became a biologist, specializing in ants. Alabama is one of North America's great biological hotspots, with tons more species of plants and animals and insects than many other states in the U.S. Alabama is a wonderful place to be if you like nature. As a kid, he accidentally blinded himself in one eye in a fishing accident. Because he loved the outdoors so much, he stayed for hours continuing to fish, suffering the pain in his eye and not seeking immediate medical attention. Months later, a cataract developed, which had to be surgically dealt with, which Wilson describes as, quote, a terrifying 19th century ordeal. He lost vision in his right eye as a consequence. His left eye retained regular vision at a measurement of 2010. He says that pushed him to focus less on the larger things and more on the small things. He began collecting insects and butterflies by the time he was nine, feeding his curiosity. One day, he opened a rotting log to discover a nest of citronella ants. He remembers the lemony smell of the worker ants. The moment made a fond impression on him. He became more certain of his desire to become an entomologist. He was 18 years old during the Second World War and, it seemed, intent on moving toward entomology and began collecting flies. However, a war-induced shortage of insect pens forced him to switch to ants, which required a different method of collection. With encouragement from professionals, Wilson began to catalog the ants of Alabama. In this survey, he discovered what may have been the first colony of fire ants in the United States around Mobile, Alabama. Fire ants are a species from South America, and Mobile, it seems, were their port of entry into North America. Wilson earned undergraduate and graduate degrees at the University of Alabama, and then went on to Harvard. From Harvard as a base, Wilson was able to travel all over the world, collecting and studying all types of ants. He worked for decades, studying one ant topic to another. With mathematician William Bossert, Wilson discovered the methods of ant communication, a complicated pheromone system. Dr. Wilson and Robert MacArthur cleared an island in the Florida Keys of all insect life to test ideas of species equilibrium. The work resulted in a book, The Theory of Island Biogeography, which became a standard ecology text. In 1971, in a book called The Insect Societies, Dr. Wilson began exploring in earnest the ideas behind insect societies. In 1973, he was appointed curator of insects with the Museum of Comparative Zoology. And in 1975, he published a book called Sociobiology, A New Synthesis. Now, here's where Dr. Wilson begins to ruffle some scientific feathers. In sociobiology, Wilson attempted to explain the evolutionary underpinnings of social behavior, of altruism, of cooperation and aggression, and of nurturing of young. He didn't just stick with ants, either. He attempted to understand how these behaviors functioned across all life, including humans. Sociologists, primarily, were the most triggered. Some accused Wilson of using a biological reductionist argument on human ethics. A debate ensued, which even managed to reach the front page of the New York Times in the form of a review. Biologists, too, were also forced to take a position on sociobiology, offering critical reviews on Wilson's attempts. All mostly agree that it was a good work that stirred up ideas that either needed defending or explaining. However, others were perturbed at Wilson's willingness to leave the realm of his field and his willingness to challenge long-standing ideas about evolution. The nature versus nurture debate was pulled in, ideas on genetic determinism, and critiques were made on how Wilson represented this idea or that. But the book made an impact and prompted others to answer back. It wasn't an entirely pleasant controversy either. 
Some of his colleagues at Harvard, like Stephen Jay Goode, for example, published books refuting sociobiology and formed anti-sociobiology groups to address Wilson's topics. By others outside of the scientific realm, Wilson was accused of being a racist, a Marxist, a misogynist. In 1978, during a lecture at a conference, a member of the group, the International Committee Against Racism, poured a pitcher of water on Dr. Wilson's head. Wilson would later say of the incident, I believe I was the only scientist in modern times to be physically attacked for an idea. Dr. Wilson would go on to write many books and win many, many awards. The Ants, Superorganism on Human Nature, Consilience, Strangeness in Insect Societies, Letters to a Young Scientist, and many more titles. Wilson is a prolific and elegant writer and a significant public figure for the sciences. He picked up two Pulitzer Prizes, the Carl Sagan Award for Public Understanding of Science, the International Cosmos Prize, a National Audubon Society Medal, a TED Prize, and many, many more. Dr. Wilson technically retired from Harvard in 1996, where he continued to serve as Professor Emeritus, but he continues to do his work and to make noise. He advocates for nature and for protecting forests, for slowing the extinction crisis currently underway. He has been an active part of the international conservation movement and has advocated for bills championing conservation in Congress. He has published 14 books in the 21st century, years after his supposed retirement, including three books in 2014 alone. His topics are varied, with lots to discuss on human nature, art, and society. He continues to give lectures and discuss ideas. Through it all, his love for ants remains as it was back when he was a boy, stomping through the woods of Alabama. And Dr. Wilson does still like to try out new ideas. He's even written a novel, something largely autobiographical about a boy living in Alabama who has a love for ants and nature. A rare thing to do for a scientist. And it's that that makes Dr. Wilson a hero of mine. His unfiltered joy for studying nature cannot be contained. His ability to play with ideas, even ones that flirt with scientific dogma, I find admirable. Science is a world of ideas. I see nothing wrong with proposing an idea and seeing if it stands on its own, even if the idea is, on the surface, quite contrary to what people expect. To me, this is an excellent quality for a scientist to have. I'm also happy that Dr. Wilson got his love of nature partly from Alabama, the same place that stoked my own curiosity for the world around me. Alabama is an insane place with a great deal of biological splendor. It makes sense that this would be a state that would produce a man of science such as Dr. Wilson. I'd like to end with a quote from Dr. Wilson. Humanity today is like a waking dreamer, caught between the fantasies of sleep and the chaos of the real world. The mind seeks but cannot find the precise place or the hour. We have created a Star Wars civilization with Stone Age emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technologies. We thrash about. We are terribly confused by the mere fact of our existence, a danger to ourselves and to the rest of life. That's awesome. I love him. He is so fantastic. He is one of those few scientists who seems to be getting and more prolific as he gets older. Mm. And now that he's like looking, 
you know, his mortality right in the face. How old is he? 82? Oh, probably no, 87, 88, almost 90. Yeah, 87. I was going to say, he's nearly 90. Like, you know, so he has to understand that, like, the end could come any second. It's just like he's going, wait, I've got so much stuff still inside of me. And he is just, he has to be the least retired person I know. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, yes, you captured it perfectly. Like, he is one of those people who's... Love of what he does and what he studies is infectious. You know, I've spent a lot of time with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he's someone who, as I've told people many times, you spend 10 minutes with him and you think you can do astrophysics. You can't, of course, but he is so infectiously extraordinary in how he describes it that you think you can. And I have a suspicion that it, all the, although they have very different personalities, the same sort of thing would take place if we were with Wilson because he just has this way of he's – the, he's the best possible teacher. Mm. He loves his subject and he just wants to share it with others. I read uh, Letters to a Young Scientist and the Meaning of Human Existence just last year as a matter of fact. So, yeah, he's really amazing. Mm. Also, I love that line. Uh, I'm reminded of the movie 2001 when that that line about we are we're living in a uh, what was it a Star Wars world with Stone Age Star Wars civilization with Stone Age emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Yeah, that's that's 2001 right there. Hmm. That's the that's the 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 problems of humanity in 2001 wrapped up right there. Yeah, he's a he's a rare he's a rare guy and. uh, I don't know. If I ever come into a windfall of money, uh, I imagine that I'll institute a insectarium, maybe even in Alabama, and I definitely want to name it after him. It's the least I can do in my imagination, you know? I have I have often said that if I knew the things that would burn passionately within me as an adult, if I could go back in time and change things, um, I would very likely be one of two things. I would be um, a marine biologist or I'd be an entomologist. Insects fascinate me. <laughs> Speaking of things that fascinate me, um, I'm going to end this with uh, threats to occupants of the Oval Office, incidents that by and large made even fewer historical splashes than the assassination attempts we spoke of earlier. And that is people who have gained unauthorized access to the White House. I know this sounds dull and dreary, but it's not. Intruder alert. According to the Secret Service, the majority of White House intruders have been pranksters or harmless people with mental illnesses. People like Sean Cox, who scaled the White House fence in 2005 because he believed Chelsea Clinton still lived there and that they were destined to be married. Or a toddler who squeezed through the fence in 2014 and began wandering the White House lawn before being caught and returned to his parents. Then there's the Pokemon incidents. Yes, plural. In 2014, a 26-year-old schizophrenic man scaled the fence while wearing a Pikachu hat and carrying a Pikachu doll. Three years later, a 36-year-old man jumped a concrete barrier on the outer perimeter of the South Grounds while dressed as Pikachu. But not every story is as funny or as easy to dismiss. Michael Winter was arrested after he forced his way into the White House to see President William Howard Taft in 1912. He did it twice in the same day. He had a knife in his pocket and was insisting to speak to the president, but he wouldn't say why. Once upon a time, the public was allowed to visit the White House, and Teddy Roosevelt would regularly see visitors between 9 and 10 p.m. every night. 
One night, a man in a tuxedo told the White House usher that the president was expecting him. TR said he didn't recognize the name, but to send the man in anyway. It must not have been a great meeting because after just a couple minutes, TR buzzed an attendant and whispered, Take this crank out of here. The man was frisked on his way out of the White House. A revolver was found in his back pocket. One night during World War II, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's son Jimmy was home on leave and had dinner with his parents at the White House. Afterward, they watched a movie in the White House theater. But when the movie was over and the lights came on, Jimmy turned to discover a complete stranger standing next to his father. The man claimed he only wanted an autograph, which he got right before the Secret Service agents kicked him out. Given the egregiousness of their actions, you would assume most of these men would get gunned down before they made it even a couple feet onto the property. But many were arrested without violence. One guy even breached the White House with a loaded, sawed-off shotgun and still only got shot in the arm for his troubles. But not everyone is so lucky. Chester Plummer was the first known shooting victim on the White House grounds. An African-American army vet and D.C. taxi driver, he scaled the fence with a piece of pipe. After refusing an order to stop, he was shot by a rookie White House policeman and died at the hospital of his wounds. In 1974, a 20-year-old Army private named Robert K. Preston flunked out of his helicopter training program. In an attempt to show his instructors that they were wrong about his skills, he stole a Huey helicopter from the base at Fort Meade. After an hour-long police helicopter chase, in which his maneuvering forced one of his pursuers to crash land their vehicle, he settled on the White House lawn in a hail of Secret Service machine gun fire and was tackled by police officers as soon as he climbed out and later sentenced to one year in jail. The police officer pilots who'd spent the night chasing him described his flying as masterful. Ten months after the helicopter incident, on Christmas Day, Marshall Fields, the 25-year-old son of a retired American diplomat, slammed his Chevy Impala through the White House gates and parked it under the North Portico. He was dressed in Middle Eastern clothing and claimed to be the Messiah. He also appeared to be wearing explosives, which later turned out to be flares. The only reason he wasn't shot on the spot is because President Ford, there's President Ford again, was away on vacation in Colorado. In 1985, while President Reagan was away at his inauguration, Robert Lotta got into the White House by blending in with members of the Marine Corps band. He wandered around the second floor residence for nearly 15 minutes before Secret Service agents caught him in the family dining room. Later, he said he didn't realize he was doing anything wrong and just wanted to see how far he could get. He called the experience the high point of his visit to Washington. On November 24, 2009, a DC resident by the name of Carlos Allen and a married couple from Virginia, Michelle and Tariq Salahi, attended a White House state dinner thrown in honor of the Indian prime minister. They did not have invitations. Shockingly, they did not know each other and were not working together. All of them managed to pass through not one, but two security checkpoints, including one which required photo ID. They entered the White House and even met President Obama. Needless to say, the Secret Service was raked over the coals, particularly after it was discovered that at the time, Michelle Salahi was being filmed for the Real Housewives of DC, and camera crews had filmed their preparation for the dinner. When caught and exposed, 
They played the victims, insinuating a White House cover-up and decried the ruination of their reputations. Several people have turned White House trespasses into a favorite pastime. Between February and April of 2006, one man jumped the White House fence a total of six times. Gerald Gaines also scaled the White House fence four times in 1975. The first time it happened, on Thanksgiving, he was on the grounds for several hours, hiding in bushes. He was caught only when he decided to strike up a conversation with the president's 18-year-old daughter. Hey there. Susan, wait for it, Ford, who was unloading her car. Ten days later, he did it again. Gaines' father had been convicted of smuggling heroin, and his son merely wanted the president to pardon him. In September of 2015, Omar Gonzalez jumped the fence and entered through the North Portico doors. He overpowered a Secret Service officer and ran through most of the main floor before being tackled by a counter-assault agent. And that's it. Well, there are many more stories like this. I think I'd be pressing my luck if I tried to tell you any more. So suffice it to say, while we generally tend to think of the White House as this invulnerable fortress and the president sitting within it as the safest man in the world— History reveals a very different story, showing just how close to tragedy this country has been on countless occasions. That is excellent. Um, uh, it does give you a false sense of security about the president and the White House. <laughs> I, so what, what was your most impressive like story out of that? What was the one that stuck out the most? Uh, the guy, well, it's the most amusing, I guess, is the guy who disguised himself as a member of the Marine Band. Uh, wandering around the second floor for 15 minutes just to see how far he could get, and that it was, quote, the highlight of his trip to D.C. That was That's cute. That's amazing. For me, it was the helicopter. Not only is it crazy that just a 20-year-old uh, guy would be that, would know how to fly a helicopter that well, but just, like, that's the kind of story I'm like, wait, somebody landed, a 20-year-old kid landed a helicopter on the White House lawn in a hail of gunfire, and that story is not known to me? How does this happen? I mean, I was one at the time, but still, that's the kind of story you think would uh, pass down through history. I wonder if that guy's in jail or... Most of these guys uh, served um, between a few months and a little over a year, I think. I think other than, like, the ones that weren't um, armed or clearly had come for some sort of malevolent um, intent, but just the people that just merely wandered on or just wanted to see if they could do it, um, they basically just get slaps on the wrist. <laughs> Oh, gosh. What a crazy country we have. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the crazy thing is, though, I'm sure I'm sure every country has stories like this. Yeah, that's that's true. I'm, I, yeah, actually, you're probably right. It's just I don't know. It just the only the only way I can think to express how I feel about all this craziness is to make an anthology TV series and just tell each story in turn, because it sounds like he, they're so different. The motivations for each is are so different that it just it's hard to kind of wrap your head head around the collective you know act of all these trespasses uh, another thing i'm i'm curious if this is true but maybe president ford is the epicenter of this episode are we sure that he didn't study ants by chance you know i didn't i i didn't even as i was writing this kind of see that coming and then it's only in actually like saying it out loud in front of a microphone to you that i'm like ford is Everywhere. This is like Ford episode. That guy who is clearly has gone down in history as one of the more boring presidents that we really can't say all that much about other than he took over the White House after Nixon left. 
and, and fell down, famously fell down the stairs of uh, an Air Force One and Chevy Chase mocked him for the rest of his life on SNL. But like other than that, like no one really knows that much about Ford. And I'm like, wow, Ford's got Ford had a lot of stuff happen to him. Yeah, for real, man. <laughs> well, thank you. That was a, an incredible collection of stories. I, I liked it. You bet. Sorry. I, you know, I, I know that uh, collection of stories is probably not the best way to conduct this podcast. But when I came across these, I just had to share them. Welcome to the credits. Music courtesy of Kevin McLeod, the United States Marine Corps Band, and big band favorites Walter Van Brunt and Shep Fields and his Rippling Rhythm Orchestra. All news clips courtesy of the Associated Press. Special thanks to the voice talents of Jack Currenton as E.O. Wilson and Alan Vichuchevich as Teddy Roosevelt, as well as Heidi Hollis, David Patrick, Rich Evans III, and me, Shoshana Rosenberg. <laughs>